Um, we are in a series on uh, the book of Haggai. It's a short little book. It's only two chapters. And, and we, we're going through this and, and seeing what God teaches us and what God shows us during this time. It's been an incredible, incredible time because it's an interesting little book, but it's packed with things that are applicable for us. So I'm going to read the passage we're going to look at today. It is Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. You can follow along in your Bibles. If you have, your, have it on your phone, or I'll just read it for you, okay? So, and uh, he's going to be talking about kingdom purity. We talked about kingdom priority. We talked about this perspective we're supposed to have. He, now he wants to get to kingdom purity and what's involved with that. And this is... Um, this is a kind of time where, this is something where I can struggle a little bit. I feel like there's some depth here, and I don't even know if I've even come close to plumbing the depths of what this passage entails. It's a passage that when you first read it, you're kind of like, what the heck is going on here? What does this mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And as we dig into it, you're going to see where these meanings come out, and I hope I'm able to communicate it effectively to you because I'm excited about what we're going to look at today. Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Now, just I want to say, Haggai, he uses dates a lot in his book. He gives us exact time periods so we understand what's going on. And this will actually be important a little later. All right. So it came to the prophet Haggai, verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food. Does it become consecrated? Now, he's saying, if you have consecrated meat and it touches something, even inside of a cloth, it touches something that is not consecrated, does the not consecrated become consecrated? That's what he's asking them. And the priest answered, no. And we all say, so what? Okay. You're going you're gonna to know why that's a so what, all right? Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, that is, wine, olive oil, stew, food, like that, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. So, dead body is unclean. If you, if you have a dead body and it touches a piece of bread, is that bread now unclean? Yes, that's how... So he's, he's illustrating something. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll get to that as we continue. Then Haggai said, so it is with these people and the nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. There were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit from this day on, I will bless you. Now, I want to emphasize a couple of things as we look at this idea of, of kingdom purity that kind of set this whole thing up. What is our goal when we study scripture? What, 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 is, what are we aiming for? And I'm going to, I put it up, I want you to see this. We want to let scripture, which is the divine mirror of truth, show us the true condition 
of our heart. What is the purpose of studying scripture? The purpose of studying scripture is not to browbeat people, not to pressure them to do certain things, not to make them feel less than adequate, not to make them feel more than adequate. The purpose of scripture is simply to tell the truth. And scripture is the divine mirror of truth. James talks about this. It's talked about it in a number of places. Scripture is like holding a mirror up to yourself, right? So like if, I, if, if one of the first times I asked my, my uh, wife on a date, you know, if I was doing some work and working on my car, and, uh, and, and I go in, I'm like, man, whew, I'm so tired. And I get clean clothes on, and I get dressed up, and I looked, and there's this black grease mark where I wiped my forehead. I look in the mirror, and the mirror tells me the truth about me. Now, if I just walk away, and I think, yeah, I got I to clean that off, and, and I just put it aside, and I don't think about it, and, and I go and, and, and meet my, my wife-to-be, I didn't know she was my wife-to-be, but I was hoping, um, I go to meet my wife-to-be, and there's this big black, I've, it, it's terrible for me, it's, terrible. it's a humiliating experience, because that's what a mirror does. A mirror tells you the truth, right? This morning, everyone got up, and the mirror told you the truth, right? And so women, more than men, use makeup and things like that. I look in the mirror, and I go, that's it. This is it. This is all I got. This is it. That's what I'm going with. I'm excited. I'll take this. That's it. The mirror tells the truth. So the mirror tells us the true condition of our heart. This is not to give some kind of a drive-by guilting, right? This is to receive the truth in humility and allow it to have its way. And this book is so applicable because of this. It is the truth, and it shows us ourselves in a mirror, it's 25, over 2,500 years old. It shows how a people released from captivity and then are allowed to go back to their land and they're allowed to build to proclaim the kingdom of God. It shows something that we can relate to because we too have been released from captivity so that we may spend our days not investing in our earthly treasures, in our own little kingdoms, our own little comforts. We have been freed so that we can live for Christ's kingdom just like they were freed. Not living in the past and comparing, but looking forward, eagerly expecting what God is going to do. Shaken out of the doldrums and not becoming complacent because that's what can happen to us just like it happened to them. And we see that God is not done even in times of our discouragement, even in times where we struggle. God is saying in this whole book, look, they show up to, to, to uh, Jerusalem when they first came back, and he goes, look at the rubble. Now watch what I can do. Watch what I can do. That's what he's telling them. I have a plan, so trust me. So he's going to give them, we just looked at them, he's going to give them two pointed questions, very, very strong questions. God's going to point out a problem they're not aware of. They're, they, he's dealt with some previous problems and some circumstances they were dealing with, People were resisting them in the rebuilding. Their own people were criticizing them and discouraging them. And those were, God was taking care of those. And now they have a problem, a problem that's within, a problem they don't even know they have. This is what's key here. This is what's important for us. Because we need to understand that the problem they have, and they don't even realize it, is a problem that we can struggle with. People struggled with this. They are struggling with it now. And these people had struggled they had had a difficult time. They had wandered. They had gotten away from their right relationship with God. They were observing the forms of worship. It was mechanical, and it had lost its meaning. 
It's like I asked somebody one time, like, you know, uh, we were talking about living for Jesus Christ, blah, blah, blah. And I said, how is it going for you? And he goes, I go to church every Sunday. And I'm like, so how is it going for you? That's not how I measure these things. That's not how God measures these things, I should say. And they, they were doing the sacrifices, but they'd lost the meaning and the purpose that was behind them. And God is bringing them back to the relationship he wants them to have with him. He's bringing them back to a biblical understanding of him and their relationship to him. This is why it's important for us. So two issues that we're going to see they're dealing with. These are the two issues that these questions are going to illuminate. One is they felt that they were, because they were working on the temple, they automatically, that just automatically made them holy. Automatically made them in a right relationship with God. That was the first thing. The second thing is, because they were working on God's house, they thought they were entitled to God's blessing and favor. They thought God's going to reward us for working on the temple. It's going to be awesome. Now, just to remind you of where they're at. They first came. They started. They gave up. They quit, they quit building the temple. And what did they do? They made beautiful homes paneled with cedar. Now, Ezra tells us they went and got that cedar for the temple and they purloined it for themselves. And God said, you know, you've, you've, you've had some, they had some good harvest. They had the, and he says, I need to get your attention. And so what happened? Drought. Drought happened. They kept going, what's going on? And then God says, let's get back to work on the temple. And they said, we will get back to work on the temple. And they started working on that. And they struggled some, and they started again. And now here's the point they're at. They're working. They're working on the temple. But the problem is, they're thinking, because we're working on the temple, this makes us special. This makes us holy. Not only that, we get special things. But here's the problem. There's still a drought. And they're like, what? What's the deal? So now, God is going to show them something. God is going to show them that external religious activities in the name of God do not earn God's righteousness or God's blessing. They only come by grace through a transformed heart. God asked two questions of these priests to illustrate the problem, all right? Just, just, just here, that first one, he says to them, ask the priests. Now, the priests are the, the spiritual leaders. They're the, they're the mediators between God and man. Their job is to model and teach biblical living to the people, biblical understanding to the people. So God is saying, okay, leaders, here we go. You know, and he, and he says to them, you, you have this situation where you're carrying consecrated meat in the fold of your garment, and that fold touches some bread or some stew, wine, blah, blah, blah. You saw that. Does it become consecrated? So does holiness jump when touched? That's what he's asking them. Now, once a year, they would have a sacrifice. This is kind of part of the illustration. But once a year, they'd have a sacrifice. A lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of Israel. It would be spotless and unblemished. It was separated and it was declared clean. They had a process for that. And on the Day of Atonement, once a year, that lamb was sacrificed. The blood from the lamb is caught, sprinkled in a holy place. There's a, the whole ceremony that goes with it. But one of the things, too, was they had a, a, like a, a thing that would wrap the lamb up. And a priest who had been clean would do it. And he'd hold it in the fold. And then he would take it to the altar, where then it would be burned. All right? So this is that whole process. And he says, and on the way to the altar, if you bump something, does the cleanliness of the lamb jump into whatever you bump into? And the priests are like, no. No, that's not what happens. It doesn't work that way. See, there are things 
There are things that are unclean. There are things that are clean. And there's some things that are neutral. Stew, olive oil. Those are, those, those are just neutral things. And he said, can, unclean, can cleanness jump into that neutral thing or into an unclean thing? And they're like, no, that's not how it happens. Now, we look at that and we go, I don't understand exactly what's going on. It seems kind of weird, but you know what? This works in real life, right? I got these beautiful white sneakers. Some other people wore white shoes in, in uh, you know, solidarity with me. I appreciate it. Um, I got these beautiful white sneakers. Now, if I go outside and I walk through a mud puddle, is that mud puddle going to suddenly get cleared up and the water be clean, becomes clear and pure and drinkable? Do my white sneakers clean the mud puddle? No, mud puddle. Mud puddle? No. What's going to happen? My sneakers are going to get filthy, right? Clean doesn't jump onto unclean. If you go to some doctor's offices, they have a wellness, a well room, waiting room, and a sick waiting room. Now, is this some kind of a cynical ploy by doctors to not let the well people and the wellness jump to the sick people in their waiting room so that they lose money? No. They know it doesn't work that way. Clean doesn't jump to unclean. This is important for us to understand. And it leads to the second question. The second question, he said, is... is uh, Right there. Come on, baby. There it is. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the, police, the priest replied. It does become defiled. What is that saying? Undefiled, unclean does jump. Cleanliness doesn't. And we see that in the doctor's office. What happens? You put kids together. Especially they do this with little kids. Why? You know, because the little kids just come and they touch each other and they get in each other's face when they're talking to each other and they spit on each other and the, and the sickness jumps. But the well one, it doesn't jump, right? It doesn't work that way. This is the way it works in the world and this is the way God is, he's gonna illustrate something to that. Why? Because he's talking about a dead body. What's the importance of that? The importance of that is the ultimate, the ultimate uh, Problem with is death. Sin brings death. And he wants to teach them something. This is why sin is so important to God. And sacrifice for sin is so important to God. Because when an unclean thing t t touches a neutral thing, it jumps. It becomes unclean. Have you ever wondered? You know, have you, have you, have you ever done one of those, let's read through the Bible in a year things? And you're slogging through the first five books of the Bible. Oh, Deuteronomy. You're going through that, and, it, and all you see is passive. This is clean. This is unclean. This is clean. This is unclean. And you're like, what is up with clean and unclean? Why does God hammer this so much? Because he's teaching them about how sin works and about how holiness works. We struggle with them. We struggle with the idea of understanding this whole clean, unclean thing. But I want to tell you, in their culture, to those people, this made perfect sense. It illustrated to them how it works. People are in sin. Sin requires something because sin is an act against God. And so there's a debt to be paid. You know, let's say someone hurts you. What happens? Someone steals something from you. They've incurred a debt to you by harming you in some way. And that debt has to be paid. It has to be paid. Now, you can tell them you stole this. I, I, you give it back or give me the money to equal it. 
That's one way it can be repaid. Here's another way it can be repaid. You say to that person, I forgive you. I forgive you. Then what are you saying? I'll pay the debt. I'll pay the debt. Sin is this accumulating debt that has occurred between us and God individually, each one of us. And God says, I can make you pay or I can pay it. I'll let you choose that. And so what we have over and over, million and million and million and million sins and people, and it's a lot of debt. And so when the Day of Atonement would come, that was their way of dealing with it. What would happen? It would, they would, tell, it would cover the debt for a year, but it was temporary and they knew it. God taught them that it was temporary and they knew it was temporary because it was looking forward to the day when it would be permanent, when it would be done and taken care of permanently. Jesus had to come to make the payment for all those debts. Why? Because they would sacrifice that lamb and then they would have another one. If you know the story, they would have an, a live one. And that live one, they would put their hands, the high priest would put his hand on the, on the head of that live priest. Uh, live, <laughs> sheesh, that live goat. I mean, I'm nervous. You guys, what are you doing to me? Um, he'd put his hand on that li- head of that live goat and he would pronounce the sins of the whole nation of Israel onto that goat. So what do you have when he does that? You have a nuclear goat. It's got the sins of a whole nation. And so what would they do? They would hire a Gentile, a non-Jew, to take that goat out into the wilderness and let it go. And they would picture, that's our sins being taken away. Temporarily, but they're being taken away. Now, there's always this problem. You know, like you see sometimes these stories. I saw the other day, some family in New Jersey was a vacation in... Uh, in uh, Myrtle Beach, and they left their dog, and a month and a half later, the dog found it, had found its way home. You have that story? See, they worried about that with the goat, because if you wake up in the morning and there's a nuclear goat in your backyard, you've got a real problem, right? So what they would do is they'd pay that Gentile, take him out in the wilderness, take him out in the wilderness to a cliff, just to make sure he doesn't wander back. That was their answer. So what's happening? They go, our sins are temporarily covered for a year. What's the problem? Within five minutes, they started sinning again. And they started building again. So they had to be taken care of permanently. And the whole Old Testament is pointing, 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 pointing to Jesus who would come and take care of it permanently. This is why God is so into clean and unclean for the nation of Israel. He's teaching them about sin and death, and he's teaching them about the covering of sins and the debt that's incurred and that it will be taken care of one day permanently. So he asked two questions that show how sin and holiness works. Holiness is not caught by touch, and this reinforces a theme that goes throughout the Bible. Holiness is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Why did God bring this up? Here's why. Verse 14. Then Haggai said, speaking for God, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. What is he telling them? Your heart needs to change. This is ultimately a heart issue. I am glad you're working on the temple. I commanded you to work on the temple, right? I'm glad you're doing these things. I'm glad you're doing these things, but get your heart right. This is what's so important. 
He says, you're following the rules, but you're missing the point of them. They're pointing to your heart. And you think working on the temple makes you holy. And you think the fact that that has made you holy, now God is going to give you a special blessing. Now, they've been in a drought. And they're kind of thinking it would end because they're working on the temple. And so what are they doing? They're working to end the drought. They're working for a blessing. And God's like, no, this is not how it works. I've been after your heart from the very beginning. I need to teach you more about grace. And this is what we need too. Because even as Christians, we can say we know we're saved by grace, but we subtly can become legalistic and think that our works earn his love and our works make us righteous. We think that, oh, yes, if I'm spending more time with God, he's, he's very, he's, he loves me more. We can, call, we can fall into a kind of a prosperity gospel and think that if we serve him, we're earning a blessing. But grace, what is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unearned. And when we allow this to infiltrate our heart and to seep deep into us, then we work hard. If we, if we do things, we know it's just because we love God. But if we're doing things thinking we're going to get something from God, what happens? If we don't get it, we get upset. What happens? Why did God let this happen to me? Why didn't God answer my prayer on this? Why didn't God do what I wanted? That's what can seep into us. Let me just show you real quick a, a, a message from the a passage from the New Testament. This is, this is from uh, Titus. Um, I didn't even mark it. Oh, well. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us for all, from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So what is he saying here? In verse 11, he's saying there's this grace that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This grace has come. In verse 12, he's saying there that this grace, it teaches us. It motivates us to live in a way that honors God. That is the motivation. And in verse 14, what does he say? At 13, he says, he says, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have something coming that we're looking forward to. And verse 14, and that's what grace does. Verse 14 says, grace, what does he do? He, it redeems us, it purifies us, and at the very end, it makes us eager to do good. It makes us eager to do good. The grace that saves you will motivate you and keep you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. This is dangerous right here. This is dangerous. Because the first thought you can say is, well, go, okay, Bob, so that means I got a blank check here. I can do whatever I want, right? Paul talks about that. He addresses that in a couple of passages. One of them is Romans 6, where he says, the people who have tasted the grace do not want to drag it through the mud. They don't want to take advantage of it because they've sensed how powerful and how good it is. We see in Haggai that God is working on their relationship with him through these messages because if he did not love them, he would not care. He's showing his love for them. 
He wants them, he wants them to see something. He wants them to see that grace needs to be their motivator to serve. It's not what we do, it's what he's done for us. And so he gives them an answer. He says, now, verse 15, now give careful thought to this from this day on. Give careful thought to this. Well, I've just talked to you about those two, cleanliness and uncleanliness, that, I want you to think about this. And this word here in the Hebrew for careful thought is a word that originates out of, out of the idea of the heart. You know, they had a different word for that, but what, what they were thinking of, but the, the center of your being, right? It's this idea to understand that this is a heart matter. And you need to think about this, what I'm saying on this basis. It's deep reasoning. It's not shallow. And he says, he says to them, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. What was it like at the very beginning? You came to Jerusalem and there was Solomon's temple torn to pieces, raised to the ground, broken up in, in all of this. He says, you came. What did you see? He says, oh, it, was, it was just a mess. It was just a mess. That's all that was there. And then they stopped working. They, they started working on it. They stopped working, working on it. And in verse 16, when, when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, he, now he's going he's to shift it over here. He wants them to remember something. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. And I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He's saying, look, look. I brought this to get your attention. I'm shaking you. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. C.S. Lewis says that when terrible things happen, when pain sometimes happens, when difficult things can happen, sometimes that's God using a megaphone to get your attention. Hey, wake up. Wake up. There's something important that you're missing. And God's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. Would you, would you please listen to me? Please listen to me. Verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. He says it twice. You know, we know this. Saying something twice is emphasis. But he's already said it one other time, too. He's saying it three times. Where's your heart? Think about this. This is a heart issue. Where is your heart? And he tells them, give careful thought when it was laid. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Now, I'll be honest with you. I read that, and I was just like, what is going I don't understand exactly. And then uh, uh, there's a guy named uh, Walter Kaiser, who's, a, who's an incredible Old Testament expert. And one of the things he was saying is, he gives, us, he gives us the 24th day of the ninth month, and that tells us something. They just finished a two-week planting season. And so when he says, is there any seed in the barn? no. It's all planted. Now, why is that important? What is God saying here? He's saying, you just planted seed like you have every other time. And you've been having terrible yields. You've been having terrible yields. And you've done it again. The same thing. The same old thing. So what's going to happen? You're going to say, oh, this is drought. Terrible yield. And he's reinforcing here. Until now. The vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. And then he just says it, from this day on I will bless you. Now think about what he's saying there. You've, you've, you've been in this drought. You've planted again. Same old, same old. Now watch what I'm going to do. This, this, think about it. This is total grace. God has pointed out 
where they're struggling. He's pointed out what's going on in their lives. He's pointed out why it's fallen short. And he's pointed out, I sent this drought to get your attention. And then he just says, now watch, I'm gonna bless you. You didn't earn it. I'm gonna totally turn everything upside down because I love you. Because I love you. This is it. This is grace. They haven't done anything to change things in their heart. So he says, please change your heart. Even so, I'm going to bless you. Nothing has changed. I've just shown you through this illustration of these laws that you have done nothing. You deserve nothing. This is pure grace. God is showing them the answer to the uncleanness in their heart is his grace. That's the answer. And this helps us. This helps us understand things that Jesus does. As we, as we go to the, to the New Testament, as you start thinking about how Jesus interacted and behaved and did things with people. And, and, and in some ways, I hadn't seen this very well before. But this, this, I feel like it's incredible. And anyways, he's in a society, much like it was with Haggai. It's consumed with cleanliness and uncleanness. The Pharisees talk about it. They've expanded the rules and made them even, even more difficult for people to follow, to have this whole, you know, this whole clean and unclean thing. And, and just like I mentioned this, that's why they said he eats with sinners. He eats with, he eats with tax collectors. They're unclean. He's unclean. Jesus made a habit of being unclean, but he wasn't unclean. What's going on? Jesus comes in and he turns their whole world upside down. Listen to this. A large crowd was following him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. He's unclean. He's a leper. He's unclean. The leper said, if you're willing, I know, if you're just willing. And Jesus says, I am willing. And he puts his hand on the man. And then he says, you're healed. He made himself, in a sense, unclean. How could he do that? How could he do that? In, in, uh, in the story of the, uh, the woman with the issue of blood, you know, this, this crowd is following, and this woman, she's had this problem for 12 years or however long, and, and, and she spent all her money on doctors and on people trying to help her. And, and she suddenly, she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. Why would she think that? Why would she think that? What would bring that? Well, they had a tradition. It wasn't biblical, but they had a tradition. You, you, you ever see Jews when they have that shawl and then they'll have a little thing hanging down. It's called a tzitzit and it has five knots in it. Uh, um, that are supposed to represent the five books of the Bible, and it's got all these meaning in it and all this kind of stuff. And the Jews had this tradition. Again, not from Scripture. It's just this tradition that kind of got going. That you can tell when the Messiah is here because his tzitzi will heal people. And this woman said, I believe he's the Messiah. There's her step of faith. I believe he's the Messiah. All I got to do is touch but I'm unclean. And so she snuck in in the midst of a crowd, got in there, and she touched it, and she was instantly healed. And remember the story, Jesus goes, oh, hang on, I felt power. I just felt power leave. 
who? And everybody's like, well, and then, you know, the disciples, Jesus, there's a thousand people around here, and you, everybody's touching you, blah, 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 like disciples do. And, uh, and suddenly, then there's this woman, and she basically said, I'm sorry. And Jesus says, no, your faith, your faith, you made that step. Go, you know, and, and she's clean. But she touched him. He should be unclean. So what's going on? Jesus is saying, well, who, who can touch? Who can touch a leper and not be unclean? Only, only God. Why? Because he has power over sin. This is Jesus telling them, I'm God. I'm God. Don't you see? He spent all of his, all those three years of, of ministry just saying, don't you see? I can touch unclean people and I'm not clean. I always think about Peter, you know, because I, I, I feel like I relate to Peter so much. I can imagine with that leper, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm willing. He starts reaching. Peter's like, no, no, don't touch him. Don't touch him. You know, you'll be unclean. <laughs> oh, I sound like Avioyo now. Don't touch him. You'll be unclean. And, 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 and what happened? Jesus, and he goes, Peter's like, oh, he's healed? Well, I didn't expect that coming. That kind of took me by surprise. And Jesus is like, no, this is, I am Lord over sin and death. I can't be unclean. I give grace. I give grace. I think one that teaches that too is, is the man let down through the roof of a house. So crowded he couldn't get in. And so they, they took apart some of the tiles and they lowered the man in. And Jesus, seeing the faith, seeing the faith of the, his friends, they said, he said to the sick man, son, your sins are forgiven. Right? And the teachers of the law are sitting there and they thought to themselves, why does this man talk like this? He is speaking as if he is God. Who can forgive sins? Who can heal lepers? Only one can forgive sins, and that is God. That's what they're saying to themselves. And Jesus, he knew they were thinking this, and he says, why do you think this in your heart? Which is easier to say to the sick man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your bed, and start to walk? What is Jesus kind of saying there? He's telling them, you, you know what? Think about this. Which is easier to do? Your sins are forgiven or heal the person? And they're like, eh, this is kind of a hard one, you know, because the thing is, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. We don't have any way of measuring that. But we know... We can measure a guy who's lame getting up and walking away. We can see that. And Jesus says, he's thinking, he says to them, he says, just to prove to you that I can forgive his sins, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And there, see, here's the thing. They understood his message, right? Because they're saying, he talks like he's God. They understood his message. He's saying, I am greater than unclean. This is the first time in history that clean goes to unclean and overwhelms it instead of always unclean, overwhelming clean. Jesus turned the whole thing upside down. And this is what's going on. Some of this, this is what's going on in Haggai. God is teaching them something. He's teaching them about his grace. He's saying, look, you're doing these things for the wrong reasons. So here's the deal. You've been in this drought because I've been trying to get your attention. I'm going to get your attention again. I'm going to bless you. You haven't done anything to earn it. You haven't done anything to deserve it. I'm just going to straight up grace you out of your minds. And that's what he decides to do. 
So how do we take, what do we do when we think about this? How do, what's our takeaway? You know, maybe, maybe you've grown up in a church, you know, you've done the church things, and yet it's lacking somehow. You realize that's not salvation. Maybe you thought doing these good things, maybe you think that now, have improved your standing with God, and then some point or other your ideas are crushed. But now, now we can see there's hope. Because God sent his son. He came in our place. He lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death we couldn't, we, that we deserved. He rose from the dead and conquered the grave so that now we can live in freedom from sin and freedom from its hold on us. And it's all by his grace. We've got to get that in our head. And we're taught in the New Testament, not only are we saved by grace, we walk by grace. We live by grace. Grace becomes the reason. I want to serve God because I love him. I don't want to serve God to get things. That's what they were doing in Haggai. They were, they, it had become that mechanical thing. It's the way all the gods were around them. You serve them and you want to get stuff from them or you want to just get them off your back. And God is saying, no, no, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. I just want you to, I want you to serve me, not to get not because what I, I'm going to give just to show you I love you. I'm just going to give. And I want you to serve out of that. Maybe we understand that and we struggle with it. But I tell you what, Haggai assures you, he ends that passage just with, from now on, I'm blessing you. God is saying, this is pure grace. I love you. That grace ensures God's love for you. That grace saves you and sustains you. That grace enables us to get off the treadmill and stop trying to earn anything and just operate in the joy of what we've been given and how much we are loved. That's it. That's it. That's what God wants for us. That's what he, wants for, he wanted for them, and it applies to us today. So as you leave this place, what do you take away? You can walk in this grace and when we screw up, 1 John jumps in, 1 John chapter 1, we confess and we move on. God's will is that you confess when you blow it. That's his will. So when you blow it and then you finally realize, I need to confess this, you're, you're following what God wants you to do. You're honoring him in that. So he, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to live this way. It's a whole new way of living. It's a whole new way of living. It's so different and it is so free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this little book and the things we're leaning, learning from it. We're seeing here that he wanted their priorities to change. He wanted their perspective to change. And now he's saying this is about purity. You don't earn purity. I give it to you. And he's going to bless them to show them that his grace is, is real and he loves them so much. Lord, as we leave this place, help us to be people of grace Help us to be the kind of people that bring healing to situations and don't make them escalate. Help us to be the kind of people that show love to people even who hate us and therefore show how we have changed because of you. Father, help us to look for opportunities to be agents of change in people's lives, to be people who bring blessing and hope and love and serve rather than people who take and keep and hold on to. And as we do this, Lord, you free us. You strengthen us. You enable us. 
to have even greater impact on people. God, ultimately, we want to be like your son, Jesus. Help us to do that. In his name, we pray.